Part One, Sections One and Two of The Song of the Lark. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Song of the Lark by Willa Seibert Cather. Part One: Friends of Childhood. One. Doctor Howard Archie had just come up from a game of pool with the Jewish clothier and two travelling men who happened to be staying overnight in Moonstone. His offices were in the Duke block over the drug store. Larry, the doctor's man, had lit the overhead light in the waiting room and the double student's lamp on the desk in the study. The isinglass sides of the hard coal burner were aglow, and the air in the study was so hot that, as he came in, the doctor opened the door into his little operating room, where there was no stove. The waiting-room was carpeted and stiffly furnished, something like a country parlour. The study had worn, unpainted floors, but there was a look of winter comfort about it. The doctor's flat-topped desk was large and well-made, the papers were in orderly piles under glass weights. Behind the stove a wide bookcase with double glass doors reached from the floor to the ceiling. It was filled with medical books of every thickness and colour. On the top shelf stood a long row of thirty or forty volumes, bound all alike in dark mottled brown covers with imitation leather backs. As the doctor in New England villages is proverbially old, so the doctor in small Colorado towns twenty-five years ago was generally young. Dr. Archie was barely thirty. He was tall, with massive shoulders which he held stiffly, and a large, well-shaped head. He was a distinguished-looking man, for that part of the world, at least. There was something individual in the way in which his reddish-brown hair, parted cleanly at the side, bushed over his high forehead. His nose was straight and thick, and his eyes were intelligent. He wore a curly reddish moustache and an imperial, cut trimly, which made him look a little like the pictures of Napoleon III. His hands were large and well-kept, but ruggedly formed and the backs were shaded with crinkly reddish hair. He wore a blue suit of woolly, wide-wailed serge. The traveling men had known at a glance that it was made by a Denver tailor. The doctor was always well-dressed. Dr. Archie turned up the student's lamp and sat down in the swivel chair before his desk. He sat uneasily, beating a tattoo on his knees with his fingers, and looked about him as if he were bored. He glanced at his watch, then absently took from his pocket a bunch of small keys, selected one, and looked at it. A contemptuous smile, barely perceptible, played on his lips, but his eyes remained meditative. Behind the door that led into the hall, under his buffalo-skin driving-coat, was a locked cupboard. This the doctor opened mechanically, kicking aside a pile of muddy overshoes. Inside, upon the shelves, were whiskey-glasses and decanters, lemons, sugar, and bitters. Hearing a step in the empty, echoing hall without, the doctor closed the cupboard again, snapping the Yale lock. The door of the waiting-room opened, a man entered, and came on into the consulting-room. "'Good evening, Mr. Kronborg,' said the doctor carelessly. "'Sit down.' His visitor was a tall, loosely-built man, with a thin brown beard streaked with grey. He wore a frock-coat, a broad-brimmed black hat, a white lawn necktie, 
and steel-rimmed spectacles. Altogether there was a pretentious and important air about him, as he lifted the skirts of his coat and sat down. "'Good evening, doctor. Can you step around to the house with me? I think Mrs. Kronberg will need you this evening.' This was said with profound gravity, and, curiously enough, with a slight embarrassment. "'Any hurry?' the doctor asked over his shoulder as he went into his operating-room. Mr. Kronborg coughed behind his hand and contracted his brows. His face threatened at every moment to break into a smile of foolish excitement. He controlled it only by calling upon his habitual pulpit manner. "'Well, I think it would be as well to go immediately. Mrs. Kronborg will be more comfortable if you are there. She has been suffering for some time.' The doctor came back and threw a black bag upon his desk. He wrote some instructions for his man on a prescription pad, and then drew on his overcoat. "'All ready,' he announced, putting out his lamp. Mr. Kronborg rose, and they tramped through the empty hall and down the stairway to the street. The drugstore below was dark, and the saloon next door was just closing. Every other light on Main Street was out. On either side of the road, and at the outer edge of the board sidewalk, the snow had been shoveled into breastworks. The town looked small and black, flattened down in the snow, muffled and all but extinguished. Overhead the stars shone gloriously. It was impossible not to notice them. The air was so clear that the white sand hills to the east of Moonstone gleamed softly. Following the Reverend Mr. Kronborg along the narrow walk, past the little dark sleeping houses, the doctor looked up at the flashing night and whistled softly. It did seem that people were stupider than they need be, as if on a night like this there ought to be something better to do than to sleep nine hours, or to assist Mrs. Kronborg in functions which she could have performed so admirably unaided. He wished he had gone down to Denver to hear Faye Templeton sing Seesaw. Then he remembered that he had a personal interest in this family, after all. They turned into another street and saw before them lighted windows, a low story and a half house, with a wing built on at the right and a kitchen addition at the back, everything a little on the slant, roofs, windows, and doors. As they approached the gate, Peter Kronborg's pace grew brisker. His nervous, ministerial cough annoyed the doctor, exactly as if he were going to give out a text, he thought. He drew off his glove and felt in his vest pocket. "'Have a troach, Kronborg,' he said, producing some. "'Sent me for samples. Very good for a rough throat.' "'Ah, thank you, thank you. I was in something of a hurry. I neglected to put on my overshoes. Here we are, doctor.' Kronborg opened his front door seemed delighted to be at home again. The front hall was dark and cold. The hat-rack was hung with an astonishing number of children's hats and caps and cloaks. They were even piled on the table beneath the hat-rack. Under the table was a heap of rubbers and overshoes. While the doctor hung up his coat and hat, Peter Kronborg opened the door into the living-room. A glare of light greeted them, and a rush of hot, stale air, smelling of warming flannels. At three o'clock in the morning, Dr. Archie was in the parlor, putting on his cuffs and coat. There was no spare bedroom in that house. Peter Kronborg's seventh child, a boy, was being soothed and cosseted by his aunt. 
Mrs. Cronborg was asleep, and the doctor was going home. But he wanted first to speak to Cronborg, who, coatless and fluttery, was pouring coal into the kitchen stove. As the doctor crossed the dining-room, he paused and listened. From one of the wing-rooms, off to the left, he heard rapid, distressed breathing. He went to the kitchen door. "'One of the children sick in there?' he asked, nodding toward the partition. Kronborg hung up the stove-lifter and dusted his fingers. "'It must be Tia. I meant to ask you to look at her. She has a croupy cold. But, in my excitement, Mrs. Kronborg is doing finely, eh, doctor? Not many of your patients with such a constitution, I expect.' "'Oh, yes, she's a fine mother.' The doctor took up the lamp from the kitchen table and unceremoniously went into the wing-room. Two chubby little boys were asleep in a double bed, with the coverlids over their noses and their feet drawn up. In a single bed, next to theirs, lay a little girl of eleven, wide awake, two yellow braids sticking up on the pillow behind her. Her face was scarlet, and her eyes were blazing. The doctor shut the door behind him. "'Feel pretty sick, Tia?' he asked as he took out his thermometer. "'Why didn't you call somebody?' She looked at him with greedy affection. "'I thought you were here.' She spoke between quick breaths. "'There is a new baby, isn't there? Which?' "'Which?' repeated the doctor. "'Brother or sister?' He smiled and sat down on the edge of the bed. "'Brother,' he said, taking her hand. "'Open.' "'Good.' Brothers are better, she murmured as he put the glass tube under her tongue. Now, be still, I want to count. Dr. Archie reached for her hand and took out his watch. When he put her hand back under the quilt, he went over to one of the windows. They were both tight shut, and lifted it a little way. He reached up and ran his hand along the cold, unpapered wall. Keep under the covers. I'll come back to you in a moment, he said bending over the glass lamp with his thermometer. He winked at her from the door before he shut it. Peter Kronborg was sitting in his wife's room, holding the bundle which contained his son. His air of cheerful importance, his beard and glasses, even his shirt-sleeves, annoyed the doctor. He beckoned Kronborg into the living-room and said sternly, "'You've got a very sick child in there. Why didn't you call me before? It's pneumonia.' and she must have been sick for several days. Put the baby down somewhere, please, and help me make up the bed lounge here in the parlor. She's got to be in a warm room, and she's got to be quiet. You must keep the other children out. Here, this thing opens up, I see, swinging back the top of the carpet lounge. We can lift her mattress and carry her in just as she is. I don't want to disturb her more than is necessary. Kronborg was all concern immediately. The two men took up the mattress and carried the sick child into the parlor. "'I'll have to go down to my office to get some medicine, Kronborg. The drugstore won't be open. Keep the covers on her. I shan't be gone long. Shake down the stove and put on a little coal, but not too much, so it'll catch quickly, I mean. Find an old sheet for me and put it there to warm.' The doctor caught his coat and hurried out into the dark street. Nobody was stirring yet, and the cold was bitter. He was tired and hungry, and in no mild humor. The idea, he muttered, to be such an ass at his age about the seventh, and to feel no responsibility about the little girl. Silly old goat. 
The baby would have got into the world somehow, they always do. But a nice little girl like that, she's worth the whole litter. Where's she ever got it from? He turned into the Duke block and ran up the stairs to his office. Tia Kronborg, meanwhile, was wondering why she happened to be in the parlor, where nobody but company, usually visiting preachers, ever slept. She had moments of stupor when she did not see anything, and moments of excitement when she felt that something unusual and pleasant was about to happen, when she saw everything clearly in the red light from the isinglass sides of the hard coal-burner, the nickel trimmings on the stove itself, the pictures on the wall, which she thought very beautiful, the flowers on the Brussels carpet, Cherney's daily studies, which stood open on the upright piano. She forgot, for the time being, all about the new baby. When she heard the front door open, it occurred to her that the pleasant thing which was going to happen was Dr. Archie himself. He came in and warmed his hands at the stove. As he turned to her, she threw herself wearily toward him, half out of her bed. She would have tumbled to the floor had he not caught her. He gave her some medicine and went to the kitchen for something he needed. She drowsed and lost the sense of his being there. When she opened her eyes again, he was kneeling before the stove, spreading something dark and sticky on a white cloth with a big spoon, batter, perhaps. Presently she felt him taking off her nightgown. He wrapped the hot plaster about her chest. There seemed to be straps which he pinned over her shoulders. Then he took out a needle and thread and began to sew her up in it. That, she felt, was too strange. She must be dreaming anyhow, so she succumbed to her drowsiness. Tia had been moaning with every breath since the doctor came back, but she did not know it. She did not realize that she was suffering pain. When she was conscious at all, she seemed to be separated from her body, to be perched on top of the piano or on the hanging lamp, watching the doctor sew her up. It was perplexing and unsatisfactory, like dreaming. She wished she could waken up and see what was going on. The doctor thanked God that he had persuaded Peter Kronborg to keep out of the way. He could do better by the child if he had her to himself. He had no children of his own. His marriage was a very unhappy one. As he lifted and undressed Tia, he thought to himself what a beautiful thing a little girl's body was, like a flower. It was so neatly and delicately fashioned, so soft and so milky white. Tia must have got her hair and her silky skin from her mother. She was a little Swede, through and through. Dr. Archie could not help thinking how he would cherish a little creature like this if she were his. Her hands, so little and hot, so clever, too. He glanced at the open exercise book on the piano. When he had stitched up the flaxseed jacket, he wiped it neatly about the edges where the paste had worked out on the skin. He put on her the clean nightgown he had warmed before the fire and tucked the blankets about her. As he pushed back the hair that had fuzzed down over her eyebrows, he felt her head thoughtfully with the tips of his fingers. No, he couldn't say that it was different from any other child's head, though he believed that there was something very different about her. He looked intently at her wide, flushed face, freckled nose, fierce little mouth, and her delicate, tender chin the one soft touch in her hard little Scandinavian face, as if some fairy godmother had caressed her there and left a cryptic promise. 
Her brows were usually drawn together defiantly, but never when she was with Dr. Archie. Her affection for him was prettier than most of the things that went to make up the doctor's life in Moonstone. The windows grew gray. He heard a tramping on the attic floor, on the back stairs, then cries, "'Give me my shirt! Where's my other stocking?' I'll have to stay here till they get off to school, he reflected, or they'll be in here tormenting her, the whole lot of them. 2. For the next four days it seemed to Dr. Archie that his patient might slip through his hands, do what he might. But she did not. On the contrary, after that she recovered very rapidly. As her father remarked, she must have inherited the Constitution which he was never tired of admiring in her mother. One afternoon, when her new brother was a week old, the doctor found Tia very comfortable and happy in her bed in the parlor. The sunlight was pouring in over her shoulders. The baby was asleep on a pillow in a big rocking chair beside her. Whenever he stirred, she put out her hand and rocked him. Nothing of him was visible but a flushed, puffy forehead and an uncompromisingly big, bald cranium. The door into her mother's room stood open, and Mrs. Kronborg was sitting up in bed darning stockings. She was a short, stalwart woman, with a short neck and a determined-looking head. Her skin was very fair, her face calm and unwrinkled, and her yellow hair, braided down her back as she lay in bed, still looked like a girl's. She was a woman whom Dr. Archie respected, active, practical, unruffled, good-humored, but determined exactly the sort of woman to take care of a flighty preacher. She had brought her husband some property, too, one-fourth of her father's broad acres in Nebraska, but this she kept in her own name. She had profound respect for her husband's erudition and eloquence. She sat under his preaching with deep humility, and was as much taken in by his stiff shirt and white neckties as if she had not ironed them herself by lamplight the night before they appeared correct and spotless in the pulpit. But for all this she had no confidence in his administration of worldly affairs. She looked to him for morning prayers and grace at table. She expected him to name the babies and to supply whatever parental sentiment there was in the house, to remember birthdays and anniversaries, to point the children to moral and patriotic ideals. It was her work to keep their bodies, their clothes, and their conduct in some sort of order, and this she accomplished with a success that was a source of wonder to her neighbors. As she used to remark, and her husband admiringly to echo, she had never lost one. With all his flightiness, Peter Kronborg appreciated the matter-of-fact, punctual way in which his wife got her children into the world and along in it. He believed, and he was right in believing, that the sovereign state of Colorado was much indebted to Mrs. Kronborg and women like her. Mrs. Kronborg believed that the size of every family was decided in heaven. More modern views would not have startled her. They would simply have seemed foolish, thin chatter, like the boasts of men who built the Tower of Babel, or like Axel's plan to breed ostriches in the chicken-yard. From what evidence Mrs. Kronborg formed her opinions on this and other matters, it would have been difficult to say, but, once formed, they were unchangeable. She would no more have questioned her convictions than she would have questioned revelation. Calm and even-tempered, naturally kind, 
she was capable of strong prejudices, and she never forgave. When the doctor came in to see Tia, Mrs. Kronborg was reflecting that the washing was a week behind, and deciding what she had better do about it. The arrival of a new baby meant a revision of her entire domestic schedule, and as she drove her needle along, she had been working out new sleeping arrangements and cleaning days. The doctor had entered the house without knocking, after making noise enough in the hall to prepare his patients. Tia was reading, her book propped up before her in the sunlight. "'Mustn't do that. Bad for your eyes,' he said, as Tia shut the book quickly and slipped it under the covers. Mrs. Kronborg called from her bed. "'Bring the baby here, doctor, and have that chair. She wanted him in there for company.' Before the doctor picked up the baby, he put a yellow paper bag down on Tia's coverlid and winked at her. They had a code of winks and grimaces. When he went in to chat with her mother, Tia opened the bag cautiously, trying to keep it from crackling. She drew out a long bunch of white grapes, with a little of the sawdust in which they had been packed still clinging to them. They were called Malaga grapes in Moonstone, and once or twice during the winter the leading grocer got a keg of them. They were used mainly for table decoration, about Christmas time. Tia had never had more than one grape at a time before. When the doctor came back, she was holding the almost transparent fruit up in the sunlight, feeling the pale green skin softly with the tips of her fingers. She did not thank him. She only snapped her eyes at him in a special way which he understood, and, when he gave her his hand, put it quickly and shyly under her cheek, as if she were trying to do so without knowing it, and without his knowing it. Dr. Archie sat down in the rocking chair. And how's Tia feeling today? He was quite as shy as his patient, especially when a third person overheard his conversation. Big and handsome and superior to his fellow townsmen as Dr. Archie was, he was seldom at his ease, and, like Peter Kronborg, he often dodged behind a professional manner. There was sometimes a contraction of embarrassment and self-consciousness all over his big body, which made him awkward, likely to stumble, to kick up rugs, or to knock over chairs. If anyone was very sick, he forgot himself, but he had a clumsy touch in convalescent gossip. Tia curled up on her side and looked at him with pleasure. All right. I like to be sick. I have more fun than other times. How's that? I don't have to go to school, and I don't have to practice. I can read all I want to and have good things. She patted the grapes. I had lots of fun that time I mashed my finger, and you wouldn't let Professor Wunsch make me practice, only I had to do left hand even then. I think that was mean. The doctor took her hand and examined the forefinger, where the nail had grown back a little crooked. You mustn't trim it down close at the corner there, and then it will grow straight. You won't want it crooked when you're a big girl and wear rings and have sweethearts. She made a mocking little face at him and looked at his new scarf-pin. That's the prettiest one you ever had. I wish you'd stay a long while and let me look at it. What is it? Dr. Archie laughed. It's an opal. Spanish Johnny brought it up for me from Chihuahua in his shoe. I had it set in Denver, and I wore it today for your benefit. Tia had a curious passion for jewelry. She wanted every shining stone she saw, and in summer she was always going off into the sand hills 
to hunt for crystals and agates and bits of pink chalcedony. She had two cigar-boxes full of stones that she had found or traded for, and she imagined that they were of enormous value. She was always planning how she would have them set. "'What are you reading?' The doctor reached under the covers and pulled out a book of Byron's poems. "'Do you like this?' She looked confused, turned over a few pages rapidly, and pointed to "'My Native Land, Good Night.' "'That,' she said sheepishly. "'How about Maid of Athens?' She blushed and looked at him suspiciously. "'I like there was a sound of revelry,' she muttered. The doctor laughed and closed the book. It was clumsily bound in padded leather, and had been presented to the Reverend Peter Conborg by his Sunday-school class as an ornament for his parlor table. "'Come into the office some day, and I'll lend you a nice book. You can skip the parts you don't understand. You can read it in vacation.' Perhaps you'll be able to understand all of it by then. Tia frowned and looked fretfully toward the piano. In vacation I have to practice four hours every day, and then there'll be Tor to take care of. She pronounced it Tor. Tor? Oh, you've named the baby Tor? exclaimed the doctor. Tia frowned again, still more fiercely, and said quickly, That's a nice name, only it's maybe a little old-fashioned. She was very sensitive about being thought a foreigner, and was proud of the fact that, in town, her father always preached in English—very bookish English at that, one might add. Born in an old Scandinavian colony in Minnesota, Peter Kronborg had been sent to a small divinity school in Indiana by the women of a Swedish evangelical mission who were convinced of his gifts and who skimped and begged and gave church suppers to get the long, lazy youth through the seminary. He could still speak enough Swedish to exhort and to bury the members of his country church out at Copper Hole, and he wielded in his moonstone pulpit a somewhat pompous English vocabulary he had learned out of books at college. He always spoke of the infant saviour, our heavenly father, etc. The poor man had no natural, spontaneous human speech. If he had his sincere moments, they were perforce inarticulate. Probably a good deal of his pretentiousness was due to the fact that he habitually expressed himself in book-learned language, wholly remote from anything personal, native, or homely. Mrs. Kronborg spoke Swedish to her own sisters, and to her sister-in-law Tilly, and colloquial English to her neighbors. Tia, who had a rather sensitive ear, until she went to school never spoke at all, except in monosyllables, and her mother was convinced that she was tongue-tied. She was still inept in speech for a child so intelligent. Her ideas were usually clear, but she seldom attempted to explain them, even at school, where she excelled in written work and never did more than mutter a reply. "'Your music professor stopped me on the street today and asked me how you were,' said the doctor, rising. "'He'll be sick himself, trotting around in this slush with no overcoat or overshoes.' "'He's poor,' said Tia, simply. The doctor sighed. I'm afraid he's worse than that. Is he always all right when you take your lessons? Never acts as if he'd been drinking? Tia looked angry and spoke excitedly. He knows a lot. More than anybody. I don't care if he does drink. He's old and poor. Her voice shook a little. Mrs. Kronborg spoke up from the next room. He's a good teacher, doctor. It's good for us he does drink. 
He'd never be in a little place like this if he didn't have some weakness. These women that teach music around here don't know nothing. I wouldn't have my child wasting time with them. If Professor Wunsch goes away, Tia'll have nobody to take from. He's careful with his scholars. He don't use bad language. Mrs. Kohler is always present when Tia takes her lesson. It's all right. Mrs. Kronborg spoke calmly and judicially. One could see that she had thought the matter out before. I'm glad to hear that, Mrs. Kronborg. I wish we could get the old man off his bottle and keep him tidy. Do you suppose if I gave you an old overcoat you could get him to wear it? The doctor went to the bedroom door, and Mrs. Kronborg looked up from her darning. Why, yes, I guess he'd be glad of it. He'd take most anything from me. He won't buy clothes, but I guess he'd wear em if he had em. I've never had any clothes to give him, having so many to make over for. I'll have Larry bring the coat around tonight. You aren't cross with me, Tia, taking her hand. Tia grinned warmly. Not if you give Professor Wunsch a coat, and things. She tapped the grapes significantly. The doctor bent over and kissed her. End of Part 1, Sections 1 and 2